Bonsoir Max. So time for a new episode of Tabasas, and that will be the second episode. So let's bring our subject of today, which is what is a cell. So for those who don't really know us personally, uh, Paul and I are uh, in vitro toxicologists, which means that we mainly play with cells. So then we thought that maybe it was good to have an episode on really talking about what is it these cells exactly. Yeah, uh, and yeah, cells are basically yeah. This this all all life is 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 a cell. So a cell is the the smallest functioning unit. I think in the last episode I said it's the ability of uh, a, a single unit of life to um, uh, to deal with the external world on its own terms. Um, and then, well, we might get back to viruses later. That's a, that's a, uh, the difference a different between form. Virus and cells or yeah. are, are virus but, cells or not. But to, to, to start it off though, Max, so basically, well, just to put it in context, uh, we also said last week that uh, as a human being, one of the animal species on the planet, uh, we're, we're made up of, we don't know exactly for sure, but about 200 different distinct types of cells, but billions of them. And we have billions and billions of other cells uh, bacteria mostly um, that live uh, in symbiosis with us in our gut and on our skin and in our mouth and everywhere. And they mostly are symbiotic. Um, and you, 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 you found the original um, definition of, of a cell, right? Yeah, not, not the definition, but how it comes. Where the word came from, yeah. yeah. So I, I hope it's correct because that's actually what I'm teaching my students uh, in their uh, very first course with me during their uh, bachelor degree. And then I introduced them to cells and how it was discovered. So the discovery of the cells is attributed to the first person who were able to see them actually. Because uh, before the invention of microscope, you couldn't really see the cells. So among those people, uh, one of them was uh, what's his name? Hook? How do you pronounce that? Uh, let me. Yeah, Hook, I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's better if I spell it because with my very nice accent, it doesn't really necessarily help. But, uh, yeah, Hook. H O O K E. And Robert Hook in 1667 uh, was playing with probably two pieces of glass. 
And by aligning them correctly, uh, he got one of the very first microscopes. And with this microscope, he started looking at, at stuff. Uh, one of these stuff in particular was uh, the outside layer of, uh, what is it, cork, right? Uh, the tree, which is yeah. made, uh, which is used to make the top of the vine bottle. So if you slide cork very uh, thin, then you can look at it using a microscope. And then he published an article uh, at that time using this uh, very basic microscope where I describe what he saw. And uh, when even nowadays, if you look at uh, this under our microscope, it clearly looks like uh, honeycomb. And in this honeycomb, the very tiny hexagonal shapes that you see uh, were called and are still called uh, cell. Cell is a Latin term, which means a, basically a small room. So when he described what he saw in the microscope, he said, what I see is something looking like the small room. So basically it's a cell, uh, which you find in Onecomb. And that's from this specific analogy that the term cells come. And from that time, 1667, every single cell, which is considered a, a building box uh, of uh, living organisms, and these living organisms can be only one cell, are called like that cell. Yeah, and uh, well, we know now um, there, there was a revision of, of how uh, plants, animals, and prokaryotes uh, have evolved. So uh, I think we, we dropped on this the last time as well. So the, the planet, our, our Earth is about uh, 5 billion years old, and we know that life has existed for about 3.5 billion years. It started off quite simple. There were, there were single, well, it was one type of what's called a prokaryote. Uh, so they're like, they, look, they were like bacteria. And then they diverged into another two species, bacteria and archaea. And then strange things started happening to the archaea. They started adopting um, things into them. Uh, the first jump we think was when mitochondria moved into the archaea. And I guess we can explain a little bit about mitochondria a little later, <clears throat> but they moved in to the archaea about uh, 2 billion years ago. And this allowed the development uh, of, uh, of plants, animals, and, and, and fungi. And that was the origin of, the, of, of this, these three branches of life that we, I guess we associate quite closely uh, with ourselves because we, we, we have them in our house, we eat them and, um, yeah, we hunt them and we have dogs and cats and, and we are ourselves uh, an animal. Uh, and then much later, actually, the chloroplast moved in. That's into the same type of organism that made uh, made plants. So cells moved into other cells to facilitate um, uh, a different different types of life. And then, then at some stage, multicellular life uh, became uh, apparent, and and then became quite sophisticated. Oh, Although there is very still very complicated types of unicellular life yeah. that can be yeah. enormously complicated too. I'm quite familiar with this uh, endosymbiotic uh, phenomenon, which is kind of yeah which explain a lot, including why those two uh, specific organids that you mentioned are almost the only ones with two membranes. 
an inner membrane, the tilacoid or the inner membrane of the mitochondria. Uh, so tilacoid in, in the chloroplast and uh, the inner membranes of the, the mitochondria and an outer membrane. And that would fit perfectly nicely with the idea that it has been uh, engulfed into another organisms. But these two, uh, chloroplast and mitochondria, are energy producers for the current eukaryotes. Yeah. What was producing energy in these eukaryotes before they acquired those? Well, the, the idea was that, that oxygen originally was very rare in the environment. And then uh, as uh, cyanobacteria started, because they, they, they produce, they have chloroplasts as well, or they, are, they have chlorophyll, sorry, and they produce uh, a lot of, um, they started to produce a lot of oxygen. And then this oxygen became toxic to other forms of life. And mitochondria, or the, the, the ancestor of mitochondria, used oxygen. Um, it's a bit, we don't exactly know where it got the oxygen from, uh, but there might have been a little bit of oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, or it might have got it from a molecular oxygen being produced by other processes. Uh, and then, Isn't the oxygen on the planet the result of the activity of chloroplast? I think, yeah, but probably 99.9%. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, but there might, there, I don't know, there might have been, I mean, there's, there's lots of people who research this, there might, there might have been really trace amounts that was enough for the mitochondria just to survive. And then when oxygen dominated, it might have been too much for the mitochondria and they, they, uh, they, they better hid in archaea, but the archaea then really could manage this oxygen better because they were using it. And it actually lowered the molecular oxygen in the archaea uh, is, is, is one, one, one hypothesis. But before we go too crazy on our, on our audience, so mitochondria are, are oxygen consuming um, orga they're organelles now. So they're in every single cell in, uh, well, in, 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 in plants, animals and fungi, yeah. but in our body, so in the human body, it's in every single cell except one, which is the red blood cells. Yeah, um, only in eukaryotes, not in prokaryotes. Not in prokaryotes. No, I didn't, I didn't, didn't say prokaryotes, I think. I said plants. No, uh, yeah. you, you said in every single cell. In every single cell of the of the plants of the of eukaryotes, okay. sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. of eukaryotes, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, and they they basically uh, use oxygen to make uh, the energy, uh, the majority of the energy for the cell, uh, and, and this is a this is a form of energy called ATP. It's a it's a really uh, sophisticated system. They, they're they're like the mitochondria work in the outer in the inner membrane of the of the mitochondria. They have uh, these uh, proteins that, that transport electrons to each other. And the last protein is called complex five. And it's basically a molecular motor. So it, it, it actually rotates um, and, and, and uh, pumps um, uh, protons uh, down against the, uh, or with a gradient to generate uh, uh, ATP from ADP. And in effect, that's how, you're, how our fat is, is burnt and and it's actually yeah it's actually consumed in a way and uh, and that's how we get we get our energy you get energy also from quick sources like sugar but it's mostly from oxygen consumption and this oxygen consumption it produces then it produces water and carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is what we breathe out so in the in the atmosphere there's I mean I know I know everybody's concerned about CO2 rising in seas and stuff like that. Well, compared to what's inside our bodies, which is about 5%, which we breathe out, 
it's very low in the atmosphere. So it's about 0 0.03, depending on, on, on how you measure it. Um, so your lungs can get rid of this really quickly and they can decide how much ox uh, CO2 stays in the body. And another funny thing about mitochondria, you get it, well, we're nearly, we're pretty sure you get nearly all of it, or if not all of it, from the maternal line, so from your mother. Because the, the, the egg, the oocyte, the egg cell, uh, has loads of mitochondria in, and it's, it's like thousands of times bigger than a sperm. And so it's all, all there. And there's, there's even ideas that, that that may be the reason why there's two sexes, because you get, because mitochondria have their own DNA as well. There's kind of a dual evolution going on that the, the mitochondria are looking for a good, uh, good genetics. Uh, is, is, yeah, it's one theory, because if it only comes from the maternal line, yeah. in, in a way, the mitochondria are looking for a good mate uh, uh, that they can have their, they're looking for a good male to donate their mitochondria to. Is one theory from, I heard Nick Lane discuss that. Uh, uh, at one stage I was looking at the different theory about, because uh, obviously because uh, a male is XY and a female is XX. So only the sperm can give an X or, an, or a Y, which means that basically uh, by choosing whether you give uh, to the egg uh, an X or a Y, a male would then be responsible for uh, the sex of the future uh, baby to be born. Yeah. Right? And yeah. apparently, I guess that in some philosophy, people were not that happy of having to bear the responsibility of uh, giving birth to uh, the sex they were not happy with. So some then research luckily came for and came through demonstrating that basically it was the egg which was uh, by modifying this shape uh, was selecting which sperm was making it through or not and was somehow able to select uh, which of the spermatozoid can make it through. So basically it felt to me like this kind of uh, discovery from science was just finding a new backup to say, if the baby is from the wrong sex, from what I was expecting, it's my uh, wife's fault, not mine. So back to middle age, uh, this girl is uh, not good because she can only give birth to female and not male. Although that's not true at all, right? Yeah, I think there, there is some scientific uh, things. No, no, that, not, but not it's that, just that the, the yeah. science in that respect, I think, is just over abused by people who want to uh, defend any idea or decide uh, who is to uh, be responsible for what sex is a baby, which basically I don't think matters at all. In modern day, it doesn't matter. No. Um, and it isn't, isn't it pretty much 50 50 anyway? Not really, as far as I know. Because uh, there is also this uh, thing that uh, some spermatozoids, the one bearing uh, one of the two, I don't remember whether it's the X or the Y, and I'm talking here just of, uh, about the human. One of the two is uh, having a longer half-life, which 
basically means that if you have uh, sex with a girl a few days before she ovulates, then the prognostic of having one specific uh, sex of child is getting higher because then the surviving spermatozoid uh, would be of majority uh, one chromosome and not the other one. Isn't it? Isn't it some reptiles or I think it's reptiles. They it's the temperature dependent which uh, sex is is generated of the eggs. Yeah, yeah, that as well. Yeah. But actually, think actually thinking about that, if you if you just think, well, now we're talking about eggs and 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 fertilization. Uh, like one of the biggest cells you see every day is an egg. It's, it's a chicken's egg because I mean most people eat chicken's eggs, yeah. and uh, it's yeah, yeah. that's one that's one cell. It's huge. Yeah. How, how do you call this giant uh, non-flying bird? Ostrich. Ostrich. And uh, how do you call the people living in Austria? Austrians. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not the same. No, there's no ostriches in uh, Austria. No, or I or kangaroos for that matter. No, no, it's just that autruche is a French name for those birds, and yeah, ostrich would sounding like good to me, but I was afraid that if I say ostrich and it's the wrong one, it would just create some more confusion into the podcast that I would start referring to a bird, and indeed kind of mention something coming from Austria. Yeah, well, they anyway. call them. Yeah, well, Österreich is the is the name, and that's why it's probably in in France like that. Yeah. So, because in yeah. in German it's Österreich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, this is it's, only it's, one it's, egg it's, as well, right? What this giant uh, ostrich? Uh, their very big egg is only one cell. Yeah, yeah. And so probably all, all one eggs. of the biggest one you can ever find. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, well, like I, it's the, it's the one. I only the biggest thing I can think of. That's one cell. In. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is there is uh, unicellular um, organisms that are also really quite big. They're they're millimeters, uh, but nothing as big as an ostrich egg that I can think of. Yeah. But they're special. So the 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 so egg cells are are always very specialized. Uh, but but just thinking about the um, all the different cell types in your body, right? So yep. let's give a few examples. So um, I, I guess we're all aware we have a heart, and the heart beats, and those that that's that's done by uh, cardiac muscle cells. Which uh, that's not the easiest one to start with. No, but it's 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 not. No, well, none of them are easy. Tell, tell me <laughs> no. an easy cell. Um, yeah, it's just that. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you when complex. you introduce when you when you introduce people to sell, you start with a kind of a general shape of it, which is uh, it's made out of a membrane, a nucleus in the middle. It's somehow round, more or less, like an egg. Yeah. And the inside, uh, the big stuff in the middle, the biggest thing inside it is the nucleus, where the DNA is localized mainly. And then you have floating organites, and then you have uh, mitochondria 
As well, there's, probably, there's, probably no, there's probably no such thing as floating organoids. Uh, the cytoplasm yeah, is not really yeah. a liquid soup. No. But <laughs> but okay, let, let's 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 talk about the main components of of all all cells. Well, there's a few exceptions, <laughs> but so yeah, Max, you you got the nucleus, which uh, the DNA is uh, is, yeah. is inside, and in in uh, eukaryotes, it's it's really comp complexly wind. I think people are aware yeah. of the, the the double helix structure, but they're it's 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 most it's like a thread that's wrapped around uh, histones, extremely compacted. Except when the cell is is uh, doing what's called transcription, when when the gene is being read, uh, the rest of the time it's really compacted. And then what what happens is a gene when it's being read, um, there's a, a protein that docks a transcription factor, and then mRNA is produced, and that mRNA leaves the nucleus and goes into the endoplasmic reticulum, and then there's specialized RNA that that add amino acids to this and then you make what's called a protein and that protein can stay where it is or move somewhere else in the cell and then have a function so so the genes on the genes encode in the nucleus for so they're basically the the, the, the fingerprint which are evolutionary uh, conserved uh, and then the 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 genes are red and then they make proteins and the proteins are depending on what they're made of, are distributed and have function. And, and it's the proteins that have the function. And then the proteins basically uh, uh, can uh, manipulate uh, their local environment uh, and change uh, the cellular soup, which is made out of small molecules, we call metabolites. Uh, and so we have this thing called the endoplasmic attack, endo endoplasmic reticulum that goes around the nucleus where the proteins are made. And then in this, then in the cytoplasm outside of that, we have organelles like, like mitochondria and lysosomes. And what keeps the whole cell together is a, uh, a lipid bilayer, uh, which basically prevents stuff unscheduled getting out of the cell or unscheduled getting in. And then what, what allows things to get in and out are protein transporters within the membrane, which is basically the, the whole system. Sounds good. Yeah, and for, I must say, it, it took me some time to realize how dense was the cytoskeleton. Because because you are first taught, uh, when you take lessons about biology and cells, uh, this assembly of uh, protein making the skeleton uh, within the cells is not something you put too much details onto. And it really took me some time to really readapt my thinking to the fact that there is so much stuff inside the cells which give it its shape and that is organized within it. Because you, you see so many drawings of the cells where you basically see only the organites and you don't see the inner uh, cytoskeleton that you tend yeah. to forget that it's there or it takes you some time or some experience to do some staining of these proteins within it before you yeah, realize and the, that it's I mean, fully the, packed. And the, 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 all the cells know uh, basically their orientation. Uh, so this is a thing called polarity. And then depend, depending on what type of cell they are, that polarity can do different things. So if you think of a neuron, it, it fires uh, in, in one direction. Um, so these are the, these are the neurons that are the the, the majority of the cells in in, in the brain. Why would you say column. every single cell knows their priority? Yeah, so I think some cells knows. I don't know whether every single one of them knows. Give me an example of one that doesn't. 
uh, or one one lymphocyte. Those lymphocytes knows. Yeah, yeah, because they, they they move to the site of 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 action, so they can go in and out of cells. So they they, they need to know. They, they they need to be polarized to be able to move. Why is that? No, they don't need to be polarized to be able to move. To move, to move in and out of tissues, yeah, they do. Yeah, they don't need to be polarized to do so. Well, how, how can they how can they move in between tissues if they're not if because they, don't have a they are so lymphocytes do have uh, adhesion molecule on their periphery everywhere around the periphery, not on a specific site around it, and then they go through uh, the blood flow, and then in case of an infection, there is some expression of uh, complementary adhesion molecule on the vessel. And then you have a series of interactions. The first interaction is basically slowing down the lymphocyte. Then it starts rolling on the uh, on the vessel made of endothelial cells. Then it starts rolling till one of these adhesion molecules form a firm adhesion. And once this firm adhesion is made, then it starts uh, really going across in what is called diapedis, which is when a lymphocyte leaves the vessels to penetrate the tissue. So, which means that originally uh, these adhesion molecules are orientated all over uh, the surrounding of the cells. So that independently on which part of the lymphocyte touch the adhesion molecules, then it will have a chance of integrating with the complementary adhesion molecule on the vessel. Yeah, so but that, not, that's a It's not originally polarized. polarized. Yeah, but that, no, no, it's not originally polarized, but it can polarize on Q. Uh, you, ever, you ever seen a neutrophil uh, hunting a bacteria? Yeah. Uh, it, it, lo it looks like it's, it's a free living organism um, because it, it, can, it, can, it can basically um, molecularly identify where the bacteria is, probably to do with LPS or what, something the bacteria releases. And, and then it knows, it, it actually moves towards it. And that, that, that actually movement is a type of, of, of polarization. So yeah, you're right, not, not, those cells are not always polarized, but, but, but they, they can immediately polarize when needed. Because we, we tend to uh, teach some histology. And when we do so, we define some cells as being polarized, basically as opposed to the ones which are not polarized when you look at them. The ones that when you look at them, uh, they are just round with the nucleus in the center they are supposedly non-polarized, whereas the one which in particular are forming tissue, where you have uh, a navigator. Do, 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 do you not think the way we teach biology is a little bit outdated, I think? Yes, to yeah. some degree, yes, but this... Because uh, Max, you, so me, me and you know, so we, so Max and I grow, uh, uh, and he, Max grows mostly endothelial cells, I, I grow mostly epithelial cells, and you can, you can, have a, you can grow, grow these cells in, 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 a, in a, as a cell culture dish. And if you grow polarized epithelial cells, they they start off when you when you so you can make them single cells with a process called trypsinization. So you, you strip away the ECM and and you, you you disconnect them from each other by removing calcium, and then they're in suspension and they don't look polarized, right? But as soon as they hit the plastic or if you've coated it with an, an extracellular matrix, which is the proteins that are on the outside of cells, they immediately polarize. And then, because they need, they need to be polarized because they only can work like that in a tissue. Yeah. And, and when the uh, tight junctions form, they think that's, that's the, well, it's the most obvious part of the polarization process. And then they know what's up and what's down. And all the cells, so we often grow cells in tissue densities of something like 10 million 
uh, per, uh, I don't know, what is it? Uh, it doesn't matter, in a, ten, in a 10 centimeter dish, you've got 10 million cells and every single cell in that uh, dish is facing the, the same way and they work together in unison. And then if you, if you do a trypsonization process, they, they'll all be depolarized again. And you can do it over and over and over again, and they will always repolarize in the right direction. No, um, I, t I tend to agree with that because uh, I would have to double check that, but uh, I think most textbooks uh, define polarization due to the fact that there is tight junctions. The assumption there is that the protein you refer to previously, which are floating in the uh, plasmatic membranes, they can basically float all around it in and out uh, in the inner uh, sheet, uh, uh, external sheet, and they can move all around the cells, except when there is tight junctions. And these tight junctions are kind of a very important connection between two adjacent cells. And once well, you in, have that, in, then in, you define in, a up and a down, or you, yeah. at least you define, you have something which is in the middle assembled, which prevent basically proteins from going from one side to the other side. Yeah, yeah, that's the, and that's bar, what bar the textbook. Thing. Yeah, that's what the yeah. textbook said. But I agree with you in the same time that even the single cells, uh, as soon as it attached to a, a matrix, then start really changing shape. Or, uh, or chemotactics, Max. Yeah. So you, yeah. you, you, you were talking about white blood cells. I mean, they're very chemotactic. Yeah. So, so yeah. they know now where they want to go, and if yeah. they know where they want to go outside of the blood flow, then they, yeah. they can they can go against. It. Uh, uh, I, I, I found, I still find, well, I mean, I think in, in general, in science is fascinating. So we say we have about 200 cell types and, and distinct different cell types in the human body. Do, just uh, Let's just name a few so you get some ideas. So we, we said uh, uh, neurons, but I think the, the biggest ones are the sensory neurons, right? Because they're, they're the whole length of your body. Yeah. Um, as one single cell, the whole length of your body. Um, then you've got, uh, well, if you're female, you have the oocytes, which are pretty big. In your heart, you have several different cell types. It's mostly cardiac muscular cells, but you have these pacemaker cells as well, which basically give the electrical conductivity to know when the heart should beat in unison. I like the, the statement that everybody thinks we have one heart, but we actually have two. We have one that services the 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 main body and then we have one that services the the lung and it's just put in one unit uh, but they work fairly independently uh, uh, so that's the heart and we have the liver which is made up of three or four different types of cells um, so the one of the cells the hepatocytes are basically they produce nearly all of the proteins in in the blood things like albumin and uh, iron binding proteins and they also produce what most lay people know uh, ldl and vdl and these are little uh, myocells with receptors in that that just basically send fats around the body and and tell the go back to the liver and tell them what, how that's going and the hepatocytes mostly what they're doing is burning fat uh to and breaking down fat uh so so other cells can get it but they're also very involved in drug metabolism, but that's an, almost an accidental thing. And uh, then in, the, in, your, in your intestine, you've got different, loads of different sections after the stomach, um, which, which has that the bacteria is in there and that, that really helps break down the food. And actually most of that stuff goes directly to the liver after it's taken up. Then you have the kidney, which has pretty complex um, architecture. So you've got, that's what I specialize in. So you have 
in each kidney, you have about 2 million nephrons. So these are long kind of tube-like things that the blood goes into the center of the tube and the kidney, <coughs> kidney cells reabsorb almost everything back again. And it seems like a complex way of doing it. Uh, why, would you, why, why would you make it so complex? Well, the, the main reason is if you excessively take something, then the transporters in the kidney are, are over, they're, they're, they're overdone. So it'll just simply go out into your urine. So it's a, it's a, a complex way of doing that, but, but for a free living animal, that's kind of important because otherwise you'd have to be very careful what you eat and drink. Uh, then what other, so we have the, uh, your muscles there, they are, um, uh, skeletal muscle, uh, so they, they contract at will, unlike the heart, which the heart contracts based on the pacemaker. Uh, and then what's very important, people think, well, I, I think when I was a kid, I thought bones were just for structure, but inside the bones is basically where all your blood cells are made in the, in the bone marrow. And then you've got the sensory cells, which are kind of, or sensory organs, which are kind of complex, like the eye and the ear. And there you've got these, this little hammer thing that bangs off the, the drum. So it basically uh, feeds in uh, the, and amplifies sound. And then that's picked up by neurons. And then the brain is, there's loads of different cell types in the brain. It's not just neurons. It's uh, Max, you, it's your speciality, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, you have different types of what is called glial cells. And these glial cells are the one which are surrounding the neurons actually the neurons themselves are something like no more than 10 percent of the cells in the brain and the glial cells are probably 70 percent of the other cells in the brain and there are a few types of them the astrocytes which uh, as the name tells looks like stars uh, which is why they are called astro and the oligodendrocytes they are the ones uh, which are surrounding the uh, Long, the elongation of the neurons. And what, what, the, what's the function of the astrocytes and the oligodendrocytes? So basically astrocytes clean the mess uh, and provide uh, sufficient nutrients uh, for the neurons. So, so they, make, they make glucose, don't they? I heard. No, they don't, they don't make the glucose, but uh, they provide a decent environment for the, for the neurons to work. I thought, I thought they were capable of gluconeogenesis. Yeah, they, they with... can do neoglucogenesis. Yeah, yes, they can. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, that's not their kind of main function, in okay. my opinion. They, they just keep the neurons in the best uh, shape for working, which basically means that the neurons does what it has to do, but don't clean the mess. And uh, in particular, the, yeah, the, the neuron works by transmitting information, and this is mainly done by neuromediation. Uh, secreting something to another neurons, uh, achieving an action. And when they secrete those stuff, uh, which are neuromediators, uh, then you have to at one stage remove them. And this removal from it is not done by the neuron itself. Uh, yep. The astrocytes are doing the job for that. And they I are heard also- that one, one astrocyte can touch uh, thousands of other um, uh, neurons, right? Thousands? Yeah. Uh, well, I read it on a, on a weekly yeah. so. Yeah. It's, I don't know. But might lots. be, yeah, yeah, definitely a lot, and uh, yeah, it's 
every single neuron has its own kind of uh, network of companions that works for him. So it, it is assumed that every single neuron has a capillary within 10 micrometer, which basically means that uh, so the capillary is uh, a tiny blood vessel. And then the complete unit, which is around it, uh, is there to serve the neuron, brings it what it needs, uh, make sure that everything is at rest for it, that there is no perturbation so that the neuron can do its job properly, cleaning the mess, uh, doing the dishes, making the environment clean for it. So, is it, if, Max, if you think a lot, yeah, will, will you use more energy? Yes, you would consume more glucose. Are you sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, but uh, this is this is how this uh, when when you see this uh, heat map of people and uh, their area of the brain being activated, uh, you see this. Uh, yeah, it's kind of popular. You see that on movies and things like that, where people have these helmets, and then you see their brain activities in specific locations, and that's how we we know uh, which area of the brain is responsible for something. This is mainly based on the, on glucose consumption. Yeah, but it is, it makes, it, I mean, you see all these silly films that say that you only use 2% of your brain. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You use all of your brain all limitless. the time. Limitless. This is limitless. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> you use all of your brain all of the time. But, yeah. but you can you can grow parts of your brain. Yeah. At, but uh, what is true is that some psychedelic drugs uh, kind of uh, activate a lot of those cells. So probably doing uh, abusing of psychedelic drugs means that you would consume a lot of glucose from your brain. Yeah, but I actually saw that it, it reduces the, um, the, the the synaptic interactions, uh, drug, drug abuse. So it's actually bad for, for your, your brain. Um, uh, yeah, so we just want to get drugs. Drugs are bad. <laughs> That's your sensible. Uh, <laughs> your sensible suddenly pops up and say, oh, maybe I should say something on the podcast to promote no, <laughs> drugs is something I, not to encourage. Uh, Max, your, your mic is still a little hissing. Just oh yeah, sorry. Um, so uh, yeah, well, I still want to go through a few, a few, a few more of the cell types. So, so you're 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 pretty much an expert in in brain parasites, I would say. But actually, yeah. before we go to parasites, I'd like to talk about microglial cells because I find them fascinating. Yeah. So, um, so microglial cells are, are 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 cells that move around your brain, but it's even a bit more fascinating than that because. They, the, the cells in, in, in your blood called macrophages, and they, I mean, they're just, they're based, they basically hunt. So they are mon monocytes in the brain. Yeah. And, and well, then the, the, the macrophages exist in different forms. So there's, there's resident macrophages in, in the liver, for example, they're called Kufer cells. And then there's macroph resident macrophages in the lung. And then there's the circulating macrophages. And they, they basically eat up particulate matter so so things that that uh, just li little yeah things that come in and they but they also eat bacteria uh, in a in an unscheduled way if they don't recognize it they just eat it yeah, and it's, it's not fully true go ahead then yeah uh, no no they, they they do have some receptor for it so these receptors are not extremely specific but they do have receptor yeah for it. but i mean i mean it's not it's not part of the adaptive immune no system. yeah so it's, it's part, part of, of the, the innate is part of the so this the innate is the ancient yeah. uh, uh, immune system, 
that ju just recognizes a foreign particle. It doesn't, it can't really learn, although that's probably not exactly true either, but just as a, as a sort of textbook thing, it's, it's, that's no, no, but it's told. just that for, for, for very long time, we saw that the innate was not specific at all. Whereas actually it is, oh, yeah. uh, it's yeah. just that uh, they do have several receptors and those receptors have a large specificity. Yeah. Uh, which but they, makes them able yeah. to interact with a lot of bacteria. But they yeah. are not specific, like antibodies would be specific to a specific virus. And we, we've heard a lot currently about the vaccination against COVID. Yeah, but, uh, and and but but anyway, back to the the microglial cells. So, so yeah. in human development, uh, we think at least that uh, some of the uh, these these uh, uh, bloodborne macrophages uh, get caught in the brain uh, before the blood-brain barrier closes, and then they just differentiate the microglial cells, and they stay there for their entire entire life in the brain. Uh, they're not they're not renewed. I guess they must be able to divide at some stage. Uh, but the pool you get is the is the only pool that you think at least, and they go around and they clean up the brain of, of brain debris. If a neuron dies or something, they, they eat it up. And uh, where do they put it, Max? What? Where do they put the debris? I guess they just chew it all up. I don't Recycle exactly it. know. I guess they can in the end put it in the CSF, and then from the CSF it gets back to the blood. But I'm not really hundred percent sure of that. Yeah, a lot of things and, and, and sometimes they can simply not get rid of the stuff. So then they form a specific, yeah, in specific neurodegenerative disease, you have a very specific hallmark of it, which you can see when you slice the brain, you slide the brain and you stain it. Then you see this location where basically the microglia are activated. They are trying to digest everything, but they don't succeed in cleaning the mess. So then yeah. you still see the location of it. And that's quite common in some neurodegenerative disease to see these hallmarks uh, of uh, neurodegeneration. And so we've got all these different uh, types of cells, and none of them last your whole lifetime. I think, not, not, except maybe neurons, do they? I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure about neurons. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah, neurons must, the sensory yeah. neurons must. Yeah. Because uh, for, for, for a very long time, we were thinking that neurons were not kind of uh, regenerating. Uh, when I was young, I was told you have only a, a stock of neurons. And then uh, if you do stupid stuff, uh, then you're going to lose some and it will never regrow because there is no regeneration of neurons. It's not fully true because we know now that there is uh, neurogenesis even in uh, elderly. So you are still capable of generating new neurons, but the fact is that these new neurons are not replacing the dead one. So if you it's lose, so, yeah, no, and it's also so much specific. This uh, when your connection established during your uh, childhood, uh, progressively those uh, interaction between your two neurons, and we we know how that works. Uh, initially, the cells don't have this kind of connection with one another, and they start. Basically, they give the hands to one another. And then the more you shake the hands, the more you reinforce this connection. And yet the other connections are going to disappear and you're going to just keep the important connections, the ones that works when there is a feedback. And uh, once this uh, connection is established, you cannot replace that. So if you lose the original neurons, even if you have new neurons uh, there, it will not uh, take the place which has been left empty uh, by the dying one. 
And, so and this, is, this, this can be seen quite well in memory loss, right? Yeah. Yep. If it's permanent memory loss, you, you yep. simply can't go. I mean, you can form you can form the original memory again by being told it, but it's a, it's a, a new memory of, yep. of being retold an old thing. That's why memory is so fickle. I mean, I, I, I could I, I remember, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I've heard stories of people who swear, swore their first bike was blue and, and then they've shown a picture and it's yeah. actually red. <laughs> Because you just you, you you remember it and then you forget and then remember it again and and the, the more you tell stories the more you you make up memories yeah um, yeah but what's fascinating about the whole thing is that um, the, the the DNA well there's caveats to all of this but but basically the DNA is the same for all the cell types uh, I I think we can say it like that so it's it it's it's a, let's say it's exactly the same but there there is certain times where it isn't but but and all, that same DNA can make those 200 or so uh, different cells. And this is something we don't fully understand. We know, we know it quite well for the immune cells because they do it all the time. But in the resident cells, like say kidney and heart cells, they, they kind of just do it once uh, in development. And that's, that's such a tricky process that we, we don't know how that happens. And Max and I now are working with, well, many other people in the field, but because we find it so interesting, we uh, are working with these things called induced pluripotent stem cells. So you can take a, a, any cell in your body out that has a nucleus and you trick it uh, into becoming a stem cell. And then you can relearn it to be another cell by giving it different growth factors and doing different things. So Max is trying to make uh, brain endothelial cells. Uh, I'm trying to make, well, together with my team, uh, 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 renal cells and and other people are doing neurons and, and heart cells and it works quite well. I mean, it wasn't that this was fully original research because people have been doing but embryonic stem cells for from fifty years. But but it's quite interesting that that the cells in your body never really decide to change. They they stay. They're happy being what they are. Um, and we we don't really know why. There's a there's a cell type I. I was interested in back 20, well, I'm still interested in, but I was doing active research in it uh, about 20 years ago. It's a cell in the kidney called the thick ascending limb. And I was What's interested that? in it. It's, it's the thick ascending limb. Um, it has a specific function, but the interesting thing is it produces a protein called uromodulin that is secreted into the urine. And uh, its function is nearly 90% of it is, is actually in the urine. And you, you produce 50 milligrams of this a day, which is really a lot. It seems like a, an awful lot of work to produce a protein just to be yeah. flushed out. Yeah. But it seems to be very helpful to keep your, uh, your your arterial tract and your bladder clean from bacteria and to stop uh, stone formation. Um, so this no is supposedly the reason for it to exist? to basically prevent infection from yeah the... yeah that's what that's what we think um and every single cell in your body has the gene for that and only one cell produces it and there's no there's no analogies to it either so it's it's a unique protein um that's yeah but i mean there's many many examples of that uh, the parasites produce these plasma proteins and that's 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 unique to them no no other cell does that i mean they yeah they don't they don't do it 
so how, how does how does the cell know what cell type it is and how does it know how to get there i mean this is the, these are still massive mysteries um who tells it what it should be yeah and then what they know the, the cells also know when they're messed up and they can they can die and, and cease to exist uh, for the greater good. Yeah. So there's there's a thing called apoptosis, which is uh, it's just a, it's just a way the cell dies that can repackage its its uh, its uh, nutrients uh, basically to the other cells without causing a big mess. Um, and then well, that's that's sort of the process of aging as well because you've got this you've got these biological clocks at the end of the chromosomes called telomeres, and every time a cell divides, uh, it, it it shortens a bit. And once it's a, a certain length, a, a critical length, the cell doesn't divide anymore. And then it can still work, but it, it won't divide anymore. So you, you, that's that's basically the the aging process that you've they've divided as much times as they can safely divide. And then they, uh, they stop dividing. And, you, and then you stop to repair uh, your organs and your skin. And... Is there any proper logic behind the etymology of the different cell types? Because I can think of some for endothelial and epithelial. So probably Historically, we had very few tools to look at the human body, except that we can easily identify the, the nature of blood and the fact that it can flow was dating back from the antics. And from that, uh, you knew that there was blood inside the body and vessels, and then endothelial cells were the one surrounding the blood. So the one forming the vessels. And whereas as a position, the epithelial cells were the one in contact with the exterior of the body. So the skin, uh, the inner cavity of the body. And then it's only by analogy that some others were discovered which were not really in full contact with the outer uh, uh, medium. But probably there is a reason for that. I know that you mentioned quite a few, but some other cells were named after their discoverer. Uh, but that was mainly because someone just, yeah. yeah I, I don't. I don't think there was any system. I mean, in the in the kidney, the proximal tubules, as it just it just means they're closer to the glomerulus. Yeah. And the distal is just further away. Um, yeah. yeah, but there uh, are specific cell types. Uh, I mean, they are part of a specific cell type. They are uh, specialized epithelial cells, or they are specialized endothelial cells for the BBB, or they are specialized uh, kind of type of cells. Whereas for others, they are specific to one organ, like hepatocytes are. Uh, yeah, but hepatocytes are epithelial yeah, cells. Yeah, they are epithelial cells as well. Yeah, but they're specialized epithelial cells. And they have an apical and a basolateral membrane as well. But just, it's not, it's not just what we're used to in. in I guess it. that's by analogy with the original epithelial cells, which were the one in contact with the uh, outside, yeah, the inside of the body, which is 
yeah, kind of the, the gut lemon, for example, is considered to be something uh, in contact yeah, well, with yeah, the exterior. You have to remember that the first type of uh, animals they were like worm-like. So it was what's that? They were worm-like. They were like tubes. Yeah. So it was simple: a, a tube inside, a mouth, and a and an yeah. anus, and yeah. uh, and then the inner. Well, over comp over evolutionary complexity, like I guess humans, are, mammals are quite complex. Then all of these organs uh, evolved in between. Yep. Um. <laughs> so, cells. <laughs> cells. So midichlorian, have you ever heard that term, the midichlorian? Midichlorian? Yeah. No. So the midichlorian is supposedly the one which are responsible for the force, which is in the Star Wars universe, uh, the one ah. that's uh, both the Jedi and the Sith Masters. And if you look at the terminology, midichlorian is actually a combination of the term mitochondria and chloroplast. And this whole theory uh, is based on the uh, endosymbiosis that you mentioned previously within an archaeobacteria and another cells, which uh, embed something into it. So I guess George Lucas at that time had some biology class where he heard about this uh, endosymbiotic phenomenon, which is making cells uh, getting either chloroplasts or mitochondria. And inspired by that, he developed this concept of uh, the force being mediated by midichlorians. The idea is that another analogy here is that mitochondria and chloroplasts are both tiny organisms in symbiosis with every single of your cells responsible for generating some energy and energy is force. So then if you look for a source of force within the cells, then you should have something more into it. And that's what the midichlorians are. So if you look back at episode one, uh, which is the, the best episode... No, episode one is the first episode of the what was called the new trilogy at the time it was released, but the second trilogy. Uh, that's when Anakin is being tested for the number of midichlorian, and he happened to have a very huge amount of midichlorian inside his blood. So this is probably a bit of a, of a mistake here because uh, probably if you expect to test blood, you probably may, uh, mainly find red blood cells here. And they would not particularly be the best one to look for uh, symbiotic uh, within cells uh, organ organized. But anyway, it's science fiction. It cannot be perfect. Yeah, it's, it's far from perfect. Yeah. But anyway, Anakin is being tested for it. And he has a number of midichlorian, which is uh, exceeding every single uh, recorded ones, including uh, Master Yoda's one. Which is why well, supposedly that's that strong. There, there, I mean, there is a lot of genetic mitochondrial diseases that. Uh, so the, the mitochondria has uh, has its own DNA. It's, it's differently structured uh, than what's in the nucleus. It looks like a bacterial DNA. It's, it's circular. All of the mitochondrial DNA is important. Uh, Non-functional mutations uh, in that, which can arise in the oocyte, um, or can be inherited 
um, as well uh, from the mother. Then you, you, there's lots of pretty terrible diseases that are at the moment very difficult to, to treat. I think they've even been talking about, I, didn't, I haven't followed this up already, but they're talking about doing mitochondrial replacement therapy. Uh, I, I think that would be done at the egg stage though. It's a, a pre-fertilization. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Then it's going to be something deviating on something more ethical, but what would be the whole point of that? That you can have kids? Yeah. yeah, but can't you simply substitute the egg by the egg of someone else? Instead of substituting the mitochondria for the sake I think of that's what I think that's DNA. what I th yeah I, I well I should have checked this before I say it on the podcast but I think yeah. what wasn't this the case where there was um, uh, children born with three donors so the the egg which has the mitochondria and then they, they took out the nucleus and put in the put in the other nucleus and then the sperm cells from the the father donor yeah. and then basically the the, ch the child had three uh, three donors. I'm pretty sure that, that that happened or happens. Yeah, I guess everyone has his own takes of uh, yeah. transmission through genes, but to me, you can probably adopt a kid and have the exact same uh, benefit of being a parent. So I, 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 I just, this kind of idea of treating someone by substituting the mitochondria at the egg stage looks to me quite strange. Yeah. To, well, de I, to I, develop I, so much effort. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I think it's, it's probably even not that complicated, but it, I mean, it, it will be possible and it's possible now to, to uh, genetically modify uh, an egg, I guess, quite easily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a related question: is whether we want to do so or not. Yeah, like ethically, because uh, we are. This is clearly the frontier with uh, genism. When you can start touching the genes of uh, an individual to be born, uh, you can explain that you're going to do it for the sake of preventing a disease. But preventing a disease is very close from you're going to do it to make this new individual more powerful or having more strengths or having the right uh, eye color or whatever. And it starts being very touchy uh, when it comes to ethics. Yeah, well, yeah, well, luckily we have ethical boards and stuff like that. So you yeah. can't just play around with the, the genome. Yeah, because I, I agree that uh, it's probably just a question of uh, money and effort here. Technical, technologically speaking, it's probably not so much of a big deal to achieve uh, modification inside an embryo uh, by just touching the genes at the egg stage. But the question is, uh, should we do it? That's different. Yeah, that's what ethics are for. Yeah. So we can do everything, but uh, what, what we don't need to do everything. Yeah, exactly. It's not because we can do it, but we should do it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much we have useful there, Max, to be honest. Oh, 
So how much have we recorded now? I have no clue. I think it's just an hour. But yeah? I, I wonder... I wonder how good that is. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> but maybe that's good enough. We can just stop with that and see what it looks like. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about the. Uh, <laughs> but because uh, I, I, I don't know why, but we suddenly started thinking that probably some of the people which might be listening to it might not all have the same background in terms of biology. So we needed to adjust uh, some basic. Meanwhile, we cannot ban ourselves from going into a lot of details, which probably even with the set basics, they wouldn't really follow up. So it's- Let, let's, let's, let's try and rejuvenate it again. So, um, <laughs> so take, well, it's not take two. You see if you can knit some of this together. But so uh, the, the the first thing, if you if you teach like I do, I teach a biochemistry course to um, to uh, well, it doesn't matter, but it's to chemistry students. And the first thing you, you, people try and address to non biologists really, because I don't think biologists ever think about it too much, is is what is life? Like so, how do you define it? I, I think it's a bit of a ridiculous. Uh, endeavor, but if if you look if you look at you know a textbook says things like um, just I'm just reading this out now so they're highly organized compared to uh, inanimate objects they can uh, they can do homeostasis which means they can keep a, a a relatively constant flux of the internals of the cell uh, they can reproduce themselves. Uh, they can grow and develop from simple beings. They can respond to stimuli. They can take energy and matter from the environment and, and transform it. And they can show adaption to their environment. So, so something that can do all of these things is supposed to be alive. Uh, I, can, I can think of several examples where a single cell doesn't do any of these things. Or not, well, not, not all. The, the only thing I, I, I can uh, see... Be, well, if you take... See, see, when you say single cell, you... Do you have in mind single cell from a multicellular organism? Or do you... No, I don't. No, I mean that's the definition of what what a living thing is. Yeah. So it could be it could be a single cell or an organism, and maybe in in fairness, with an organism, it doesn't have to be every cell in the body because, like the red blood cells are an example, where they cannot reproduce because, themselves. Uh, I think as you once said when we were discussing a kind of a similar topic, if you chop off your finger, the cells which are in the a part of your uh, body which is no longer attached to it is uh, no longer a living thing. Well, they will die eventually. They're living at the point of cutting it off and for quite a while afterwards. Yeah, what, what, what I mean by that is not every single one of your cells should be considered living organisms. No, 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 that's true. So, so, so a multicellular organism uh, such as us, it's, it's, yeah. the, it's the, whole, the whole being uh, yeah. should be considered. But, but if, you, if you take it to the nth degree, um, and think about all life forms, all, all, all yeah. Which so, basic definition of life is is something that 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 everybody agrees on. It's 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 a it's a single cell or or, or multicellular organism. 
So in a way, defining what life is is defining what a cell is. Um, but if you, so in my opinion, a cell, the, the, the unifying thing is that it, 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 it can reproduce itself. Um, it, can, it can multiply. You're, you're laughing. Wait. Yeah. yeah, because I just realized that I probably spent uh, at least eight years studying life science and now probably 10 years teaching life science. And now I'm uh, struggling really giving a definition of what is life. No, because I think it's I, I think I think it's complex, and and those those uh, sentences I just or those points I read out that don't really excite you know if you if you put them like that. Um, I mean, what is what is for sure is um, cells take take extracellular substances and use that to create energy. I mean that that that's that has to be. I mean that that's one of the the, the grounding forces, um, and because everything like life life evolves from a, a single uh, cell, a very simple cell, and then split and then rejoined again. Um, it, the the definition of the, of life, at least on this planet, is the is the is the ability to pass on that genetic information because we're based on evolution. That that might that might stop at some stage. If everything fully stabilizes, which I doubt, but we're talking millions of years or even maybe billions of years from now. But at the moment, the ability to be to, not not that the organism has to reproduce, but the, the the members of that particular species or whatever has to be able to has to have the ability to do it. Because we don't we don't know of any life form that hasn't changed since the beginning of time. In the meantime, if you stick to this uh, definition you just gave uh, it would basically encompass evolution within the process of transferring which basically means that you would consider every single living form on this planet to be one yeah but that's 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 a higher point um, and I, I I do feel that I mean it's that's a belief yeah. uh, that that it, it is I mean, it is one ecosystem. I mean, if you think of the, if you think of it, evolution is one way of passing the information. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I, I like, and, I, and it also fits with the idea of adapting to this uh, to the environment, which is one other uh, point that you listed as. Uh, so, I mean, without doubt, all, all all cells have have apart from in a single organism like the red blood cells, which don't have DNA, but but all organisms have DNA. Uh, and the ability to pass that DNA onto its progeny, uh, either the way it is or, or changed. So, uh, you know, some organisms don't do sexual reproduction, so they, they pass it on, but it can it can mutate uh, down the line um, and then change it uh, to something different. I mean, I, I mean, people wonder, you know, about evolution. It, it, there is no purpose to it really, but but you have to sit, you have to fit into the ecosystem. Or the ecosystem changes, and then life has to adapt to that. I mean, I mean, humans are very disruptive uh, beings in our ecosystem. Will 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 uh, will we adapt to change it back, or at least to stop it changing so much? Or will life around us adapt to our disruption? Uh, I, I don't know. These are tough questions. I, I do definitely believe we we really have to, you know, re rethink about our our uh, toxic behavior. 
But just back to that, if if I define, I'm 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 not. There's no consensus here. In fact, I I I, I cause uh, upset when I say this. If if you if you define life as the ability to be able to reproduce uh, and 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 the potential to evolve, evolution is not necessarily needed. Then, unfortunately, you'd have to say that viruses are a life form. They miss the ability to be able to. Um, take in energy or produce energy, but they use other cells to do that. I mean, they're wholly parasitic, um, but they're a very simple form of life. And as far as we know, they've been around since the very beginning of life. Um, and and they, they, they force evolutionary changes in other life forms. I mean, it's a big battle, the, 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 uh, the viruses that attack E. coli, what are they called again? Um, Bacteriophage, yeah, the phages and the, and the, they they the, the bacteria always is, is is adapting. I mean, it was uh, the Nobel Prize this year in chemistry was for the discovery of CRISPR Cas9, which is a molecular biology tool. But it was an ingenious system of bacteria. They have actually their own immune system. A single cell a system has an immune system to protect itself from bacteriophages. Uh, it's it's really really exciting and interesting to show that even very simple cells are really complex and like human beings as i said we have about these the, I, I again i'm saying 200 but i don't know exactly the number of different cell types but they all work together um and each one of them is fascinating and they all work together and they all share the same dna um so yeah, so it's it's strange that that even as you said, Max, even as a biologist, it's difficult to define such a thing that that's satisfactory. Um, so I think and th I think we have to really put viruses out on their own because they are strange. Uh, they they don't they don't really fit any of the things except the ability to reproduce, and and change. They mutate all the time. We see this with COVID. That it's just getting. I heard people saying smarter. It, it's not. It's there's no there's no intelligence there it's just it's it's probability basically because you don't you don't hear of the stupid viruses that had a mutation that made them dumb and then didn't grow so it's not they're not they're not smart per se it's just it's just probability that they have a certain amount of dna and if this changes slightly they become more persistent i i don't think we i, I don't recall really questioning whether virus was a living organism or not. Uh, the way we usually see it is questioning whether a virus is a cell or not. No, it's not, it's not a cell because it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah, but in the meantime, we easily agree on the fact that the virus is not a cell. Yeah. And in the meantime, we define a cell as a building box of uh, the tiniest living organism. Yeah, except so, viruses are outside of that. Yeah. So basically saying a virus is not a cell, while in the meantime saying a cell is the definition of a living organism, basically implies that you would then consider a virus a non-living organism, whereas it is. I think, I think, yeah. So I think that that's the thing. How do you, what are we trying to say? So it's not a living organism, maybe, but it is a life form. Yeah. Just a very strange one. 
And it, like we think viruses, I guess humans think viruses are just out to be pathogenic to us, but they're they're out to get all organisms. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have to to read the books that you recommended a few times called the self gene. But can it be that a virus is a kind of evolution of a gene or maybe a set of genes in that case? Who find um, a trick just, to pass on? But just to clarify, I'm not a virologist and neither are you, but uh, but Richard Dawkins in his, in his 1974 thesis, The Selfish Gene, he, he made a nice twist on life. He said that that uh, cells are just a vessel uh, for DNA. And the, 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 not even the DNA itself, a single gene is greedy and wants to make more of itself. And that's impossible to disprove because uh, it's, it's, it's basically a fact, but it's, 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 it's conveniently a simple thesis. I think that's, that was the point of Richard Dawkins to make it that simple, so it'd be challenging. But uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating book, actually. And it's been revised a few times now as well. I haven't read the last revision. Um, but, um, and then there's the people who, who li like mitochondria as well. And, and you could put it the other way around that, that uh, li life that holds mitochondria. So eukaryotes were basically a way that mitochondria could be very successful. And so you could have the Richard Dawkins theory of mitochondria as well. Although mitochondria have DNA in two, so. So then you've got these two symbiotic DNA sets that are, uh, that are happy to, uh, to work together to make more of themselves. Yeah. Well, I guess that's our hour. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was helpful for anybody. <laughs> <Don't know. laughs> we, we, we thought we thought we should release another podcast. <laughs> maybe maybe any more we should try and make it a bit more structured. Yeah, I would see. Yeah. Let's edit it and we'll see. Okay. So I'm gonna stop the recording. So thanks okay. for listening. And yeah. see you. Amis. En tout cas, pour résumer ce qu'il faut, ça fait en cette lettre. La science,